Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Plant Harvest Prosper. I'm your show host, Kel Williams, Wealth Advisor and Certified Financial Planner for Financial Harvest Wealth Advisors. The purpose of Plant Harvest Prosper, or PHP, is to help our listeners make wise decisions with your money and encourage you to live purposefully towards prosperity. Our listeners will receive completely objective and independent advice every time we gather to help you succeed regardless of your age or financial needs. We challenge you to define what does living a life of significance look like to you and then how to use your wealth to achieve that. Each episode, we will address a different financial topic with applicable steps to be in action in right now, if not already. Today, we're going to highlight a recent webinar that we did, some of the main key points and takeaways from our midterm check-in, which stands for Markets, Inflation, and the Dimensional Difference. Nice little play on words, given the timing of the midterm elections. In the webinar, I interviewed founder and CEO of Financial Harvest, also a fellow certified financial planner and certified succession planner. He is, not myself. David Witter. And in my questions to David, he addressed, where are we today? Let's just get some clarity with all the information that we receive daily, most of the time negative. Two, what's really caused the volatility this year? And how should we think about it now moving forward? And then three, who are dimensional fund advisors? And what is the dimensional difference? So please listen in closely to some great insight and Apple PHP takeaways. There's been a lot going on. Market performances truly look like a heart rate monitor, up and down, up and down, up and down, but mostly down. So with all the back and forth news we hear daily, can you give us some clarity, please, and help us recenter, like you were talking about, on just where are we today? Where are we today? And what I, um, by the way, I got tremendous help from our team putting this content together. Uh, Lauren on our team in particular, uh, she helped me gather a lot of this data we're going to be going through here today. But what you're looking at here is, now this is the end of September. Now, news maybe to some of you, but October has had a substantial rebound. It certainly hasn't erased the losses that we have so far this year, but it's really turned around quite to the surprise of everybody. But year to date, as of the end of September, the blue bar shows you the S&P 500, 500 large U.S. companies. The orange bar shows a bond index, and its maturity is roughly three to five years of maturity, and this government bond, so high quality. And then the green bar there is value stocks. So the, the point to make here, to, to notice here is downward pressure, right? And what's unprecedented about this year is you're seeing downward pressure on bonds and stocks. We'll talk about more about that in a moment, but not fun. Not fun to see your portfolio down 20% on your stocks and then your bonds down, you know, five to 10% as well. So rough conditions to say the least. But remember there in that number two objective perspective. So what I love to do is zoom out. So when we go to five years and we look at the last five years, you can see that, believe it or not, the S&P 500 is still strongly positive. Value stocks are still very positive. And bonds kind of just eke out, you know, holding their own. When we go to a 10-year perspective, 
we see it even more pronounced where stocks provided a very strong return. And that's one of our purposes for owning stocks is to beat inflation and to outperform bonds in the long run. But look at this, even in the last 10 years, a healthy performance from stocks. And then the last zoom out that I'd like to do is a 20-year perspective. And notice that you still have, this is going all the way back to 2002, by the way, which caught the tail end of 9-11, caught the tail end of the dot-com. You can see, again, stocks with a very strong performance. In bonds, you've got a 3% return over that 20-year period. Some of you listening are probably visual, visually oriented. So what you're looking at here, let me draw a little picture here if I can get that thing to work. There we go. So when we look over here on the far uh, left-hand side, it's starting with $1. And what this shows us, the gray is inflation. So over this 20 years, you need today about uh, $1.70 to have the same buying power as $1 just 20 years ago. But look at this amazing real rate of return. Even with this recent downfall, you can see that value stocks, if you invested $1, it grew to $6. Or if you invested $100,000, it grew to $600,000. Or if you invested a million dollars, right, it grew to $6 million. And even the S&P grew to four, you know, 4.5. So significant upward movement over this 20-year period. And also, I want to point out, Again, perspective, right? Look at this. Many of you on the call today were clients you know, working with me back in the 08, 09 financial crisis. And when we were in the middle of it, oh my gosh, it felt like it never ended. And it did. And things came back and they rebounded. And here we are today sitting at a significantly higher level, even through 9-11.com, right? The, 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 the recession, uh, the great recession, they like to call it the financial crisis. Uh, 2015, there's a downturn, the pandemic, let's not forget that. And then even with this inflation pressure, we have tremendous growth of our wealth over that time. Wow. I think it's just, it's so compelling to take a step back. It's very easy to look at a finite viewpoint of just this year. But if you look back 5, 10, 20, how important it is to have equity exposure. Because if you just invest in bonds or a relatively conservative approach, you definitely run the risk of being very thin with your margins on protecting your purchasing power. Yeah. So that's, that's compelling. Mm -hmm. um, so to, to begin the year, David, the war and global energy crisis, you know, it seemed like it was concerns there. That seemed like the biggest issue in addition to some inflation concerns. So can you just tell us what has been the main cause for the relatively recent through the end of September, consistent downward pressure. Uh, what's causing the downward pressure? So, you know, I many things, right? But I'll kind of narrow it to two. Um, the first one is recession fears. And when you hear the word recession, cascade the meaning of that. So, well, well who cares if we have a recession? Well, the meaning of it from a, an investor point of view is potentially lower profits. So I'm going to use a, a formula, and this is very, very simplified. But if you're talking about the price of a stock, you could say one way to look at it is the price would be equal to future profits. But those are profits in the future, right? So you would discount them. 
because a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. So you would divide it by, let's say, we'll call it a discount factor. And I'm, I'm going to use today, this is really simplified, but use inflation. Now, in normal circumstances, let's say at the beginning of this year, you might say, okay, well, I have a stock and it's going to give me you know, $12 of profits for the next five years and so on. And so it adds up to $60 of profits. And then let's say for the discount factor, you use the historical norm of 3% inflation. You would say that that price of that stock might be worth $20. <laughs> well, if we have a recession, and what a recession is, is that the number of transactions in the marketplace for goods and services, that the number of transactions goes, goes down, right? The space of possibilities for transaction decreases. And so you could say, well, I think the profits might go down. So in our new formula, I'll use a different color. You might say, oh, I think the first year, oh, it didn't go to a different color. So the first year might be five, then it might go to six. And then I think it's gonna come back up 12. Right. So in that situation, let's see, I'm giving myself some hard math. Uh, so 36, uh, 42, 47. So now we're at $47 divided by three, which is roughly 16 bucks. So if you have a fear of a recession or you think that profits are going to diminish, you would pay less for that stock. Now, the second reason that we're seeing downward pressure is inflation. So let's come right back to our same formula. So if you remember, our kind of like steady steady state was we were taking $60 of profits divided by 3% inflation and had it at 20. But if inflation, even if the profits stay the same, but we think inflation is going to remain elevated, what just happened to the stock price? Went down, right? So by going from 3% inflation to 5% inflation, we're now at $12 for that same stock that just a, you know, a few months ago, we might be willing to pay $20 for. So this is why inflation is so punitive from an investor point of view. And my argument would be over the course of this year, the first nine months, 10 months or so, Earnings of companies so far haven't really moved a whole lot, but what's changing is this inflation expectation. And so at the beginning of the year, many investors were on the impression inflation is not going to be too persistent. Here it has been persistent and it's driven this price down. And if you think about it, you almost have like a double whammy because if the profits are down and let's say you think your profits are only going to be 50 and inflation is really high, now we're all the way down to $10 for that stock. And that's a 50% decline. Now, we're not dealing with that, but that's an example of future profits discounted by inflation. And right now, with high inflation and downward pressure on the earnings, possibly, that's why you're seeing prices move down uh, pretty much year to date. Love that example. It's, I think it's very easy to miss when you're buying into a stock, you're buying a company, it's made up of people but you're also buying future profits. So if future profits are worth less, then of course you can see the downward pressure that we've been experiencing. Yeah. So that was a really good example. Thank you for that. Take well, it's not fun, to go, not fun to go through and experience it though. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> it's a different distinction. <laughs> yeah. Are there types of stocks 
that tend to hold up better during high inflationary time periods. Yeah, and before I dive into that, because I just saw our first Q&A, thank oh. you, uh, Reeves, for jumping in there. So thank you. I love this. He always brings us zingers. I mean, in a virtuous way, Reeves. Um, so he says, despite continued uh, increases in inflation or persistent inflation, why do we see the Dow Jones experience the best October since 1976? Reeves, I have no idea. <laughs> but that's the point. That's why you have to stay invested. Now, my the the um, how to say the best example I want to cover or speak to today, I want to say it was October 13th, and check me on that. But that was the, the last time they had an announcement releasing the data on inflation. So coming into the opening of the market, October 13th, there's this expectation of what the inflation is going to be. And the announcement came out that inflation was still pretty doggone high. The futures in the stock market plummeted two and a half percent, just like that. And it opened down two and a half percent. Now around 10 or 11 o'clock on that same day, I have no idea what happened, but investors collectively changed their mind. And they then proceeded to drive the price up to where it closed at the end of the day, up two and a half percent. That is a five percentage point move in one day. And like all of us on the call right now, some of us would be like, oh, inflation's high. I think, I think stocks look better. Some of us on the call are like, gosh, if inflation's high, it doesn't look very good to invest. And that's the volatility that you're going to experience. So another takeaway from today is what the data shows us back in the 70s and the 80s, the unfortunate thing is when inflation is elevated, volatility is higher. No way to work around that. So you just kind of have to accept it. And honestly, I... You know what? I don't know, Reeves. I don't know what caused that. Another question I just saw come through is, so good time to buy? Question mark, question mark. The best time to buy or invest is when you have the money. And the reason I say that is if you look at, at daily stock market data over 100 years, each day when we wake up in the morning, 55% of those days are up days, 45% of those days are down days. When you push to a year, so when you wake up January 1st, that data goes all the way up to 75, 80%, that it's going to be a positive year versus a negative year. So we call it play the odds. There's no way to prognosticate exactly when the market's going to turn either up or down, but we know the ever onward march of stocks is up, right? So invest and play the odds when you have the money. And David, right. real quick, just to, to highlight that, I mean, you already touched on this, but playing the odds is so true, even in high inflationary time periods, mm -hmm. right? Because in high inflationary time periods, it is more volatile. So instead of it maybe being 75, 80%, maybe it's more 60, 66%, yeah. but you still play the odds. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just not as easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So back to your question. Are there types of stocks that tend to perform a hold up a little bit better during inflation? So some of you, we've actually covered this, but I want to touch on it again because I think it's so important. So what we did was we went back to the 70s and the early 80s, 15 years of data. The reason I chose this 15-year period is look at this inflation. And if you analyze it out, inflation clicked at 7% for 15 years ugly. But then if you look at stocks, here's the S&P. 
right? 11 out of 15 were positive. And then over here, a value basket of stocks, 12 of 15 were positive. And what's curious is when we look at the returns of the S&P, it averaged its historical norm of about nine. But look at what value did. Value compounded at somewhere closer to 14. So when we look at it on the graph, the gray line, I'm going to do it in red because it's inflation and it's just kind of mean and nasty. Oh, it didn't do it in red. Come on. Yeah, so that's the consumer price index. What this shows you is that if you started with $1, you needed $2.80 to have the same buying power. But the good news is if you owned some value stocks, it grew to $7. So the takeaway from this is during inflationary times, we are not advocating only buying value stocks. That's not it at all. Uh, in fact, we had a meeting just this morning. We didn't get lucky and pick value. We've always in our portfolios for our clients and our own had a bias towards value stocks because the data shows us six out of 10 years value outperforms growth. And when you compound that out over time, it equals somewhere around a 2% premium. It just so happens that during inflationary times, those value stocks tend to hold up better, perform better. And we definitely saw that in the 70s and 80s. And you might say, well, why? Like, what, what, what is it about value? Value stocks tend to be those companies that are profitable now and getting those profits in now, like a, maybe a Verizon Wireless, whereas a growth company is one that's uh, you know, projecting or um, pushing for future profits, like maybe a Tesla. So when you have that higher inflation, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. Excellent. So just making sure there's no questions. No, we're good to go. So in your previous slide earlier, where we had the comparison between bonds, S&P, and then the value index, we saw, especially back in 08, 09, well, S&P was getting hit, value was getting hit, but bonds were going up a little bit, not much. But right now, bonds are down too, which is very unusual. Yeah. Okay? To see them decline while stocks are declining as well. So for our clients, who are drawing income from the portfolio, we can understand this can be worrisome. So is there anything we can do to help them take care of their concerns and help with this situation? Yeah, that's, that's one of the things with inflation is that you see downward pressure on bonds at the same time as stocks. That's not going to be forever, right? But it is a season that we're in now. So what are some things that we can take away if we own bonds in our portfolio and especially for our clients that are in retirement are drawing from their portfolio. So the first thing I want to point out is that when the price of bonds goes down, don't forget that the yield goes up. So you might say, well, yeah, yeah, but how does that help me, David? So if you have a portfolio with a million dollars in it, keep the numbers easy. And let's say you've got 700,000 of stocks and then you have 300,000 of bonds. Now, what's interesting is at the beginning of the year, this bond portion, the yield, let me put 1231 because it was at the end of the, or the beginning of this year, the yield was 0.4%. Now, if you had 300,000 in bonds 
and you have a 0.4% yield, it means that it's generating $1,200 of annual income in your portfolio. Now, if you're not taking money out, we use that a lot of times to reinvest or rebalance a portfolio. But if you are drawing income out, we use that to fund your distribution. So let's add that distribution in here to our little diagram. So let's say that you have a faucet turned on and you're taking out $2,000 a month to live on or $24,000 a year. So the, what has occurred in the marketplace is now bonds today are yielding 4%, 10 times higher than just 10 months ago, which means that the bonds in your portfolio are generating $12,000 a year of annual income. So if you're drawing out 24 a year, now we have income coming in from these bonds that covers half of your annual distribution that you need to live on. We didn't have that situation up here at the beginning of the year, which forced us sometimes to sell either stocks or bonds to generate the cash for your distributions. So the bad news is absolutely the prices of your bonds are down. The good news is the yield is much higher and it's generating more income to fund your distributions. Now, the second thing that we're doing with clients, especially those clients that are taking money out from their portfolio, is we're setting up individual bond ladders. So back to our big bucket, we still have our million dollars in it. And let's say that we have a pie chart, then it's a 70-30. So we have our 300,000 back in bonds. Well, one of the things that we've been doing is for those that are taking money out, we carve out a portion of the bonds and we build a bond ladder. So we might have here in 2023, a bond that matures in January, April, July, and October. And then the following year, maybe January again, and maybe one in July. The purpose of doing this, so remember if we're using our same example, you need your 2,000 a month. Well, what we can do is on these bonds with known maturities, we can do 6,000 in that bond, 6,000 in that bond, 6,000 in that bond, 6,000 in that bond. With a known maturity bond, you know that come January, it matures and the principal comes back to you to fund the distribution. What in essence it does is it takes a little bit of the volatility out of just owning a bond fund. Now for you that uh, they're on the call today that aren't drawing income out, you don't need to do this. However, if you're in a spot where you're like, hey, I need money in a year or I need a money every quarter or I need a money for my required distribution in 2024, we're starting to build these individual bond ladders where we buy a treasury or we buy a treasury inflation protected security as a mouthful, a tip. And we're starting to build those out over a ladder of maybe maturities every three to six months to fund these distributions. So those are two things to kind of take with you if you're concerned about the bonds in your portfolio, especially if you're drawing income out. Number one is bond prices are down. However, we got a lot more yield now to generate the income that we need and then number two is where appropriate, if we are looking at known distributions coming up, we can start building up individual bond ladders.
Yeah, completely different conversation uh, than a year ago, centered around bonds and their yields. Uh, here's a question everyone has been waiting for. When might we see things turn around? Can you give us some hope, please? Yeah, that's the one we always get. We're like, David, Kellen, we want you a crystal ball. Like, when's it going to get better, right? Please. <laughs> All right, well, so I gave this a little bit of thought. And um, let me come back to uh, our little little data here at our, our slide deck. So I'm going to come back to the decade when we had that rampant inflation. So the question was really focused on 70 through 80. So let me draw. Well, you can see here where, look, stocks, quite frankly, barely kept, kept up with inflation. But what I want to drive home today, this is the reason for hope, is what happened here and here, because it really moved up. So if you're a historian, you may know this, but in late 79, here comes Paul Volcker and becomes the new Fed chair. And what he pointed out was our problem is this rampant inflation, which is this gray line. Let me uh, do it in red so you can see that. This red line, this inflation has been kicking along at 7%, and we've got to do something about it. So what does Volcker do? He raises the Fed funds rate up to 18 or 20% in 1980, and it kind of stayed elevated for about two years. So I'm just going to write 18% Fed funds rate. Now, that's painful. Look at these yellow, the red shade here, recessions, two back-to-back -back recessions. But what is really curious, in the midst of these recessions, in the midst of really high inflation, or inflation and also Fed funds rates, we see that stocks are doing this. What's going on? So this is David's take on it. If you look at the, um, the inflation numbers through here, and then here, it was in 1982 when inflation finally toppled over. So he comes in, Volcker comes in, ratchets rates way up, tries to pull all this excess currency out of the marketplace. It's very painful for the economy with the recession. But what did it do? It pulled the inflation down. And that's why we saw these tremendous movements up in the stock market. This second one right here, we saw value and even the S&P double in value in 12 to 18 months. So this is like where I kind of hang on to is like, okay, we get some positive news maybe in the future. I don't know if it's going to be in two weeks, two months, two years, but when inflation does start to topple over, I think you'll see maybe not to the same degree, but you should see a nice little pop in stocks. And it goes right back to our formula. If you remember at the beginning of the show here, price, equals profits, right? Divided by some discount factor, divided by inflation. So if inflation drops, that price of the stock goes up. So we'll see. I don't know when inflation is going to topple over, but I do, looking at the data, right? And looking at the formula, it's like, hey, when things finally start to cool off with inflation, we should see a nice little pop in stocks. Now, the second thing I want to point out is the midterms. Now, if you've been around Financial Harvest for whether it's one year or 15 years, you know that we try and stay, well, 
we are apolitical when it comes to your investment strategy because the data shows that if you start letting your politics drive your investment decisions, it doesn't work out well. But what I will point out is if you go back to 1946, post-World War II, there were 20 midterm elections. And during those midterm elections, if you look one year later, so one year after the election, 20 out of 20 times stocks are positive. And the average increase is right in here, 15%. Now, this is no guarantee, right? We don't know. This might be the first time after a midterm that a year later, the market's lower. But the data kind of points that oh, things usually move upward after a midterm election. My theory on that is that people think things are going to get better, right? Who knows, right? Whether they're Democrat, Republican, or anything in between. <laughs> so hopefully that'll bring a little bit of hope, uh, maybe some upward movement. The other thing I'd say too, is I think a lot of the downward pressure is due to inflation. Let me come off the screen share. Uh, due to the inflation. And if, if you get some kind of like gridlock in Washington, hopefully that will slow down the spending. Uh, whether it's the, and I'm, look, I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it. Right? I'm not trying to you know, vote on the different policies, but the CARES Act, the American Rescue Plan, the mini Build Back Better plan, the infrastructure bill, the uh, student loan forgiveness, all that is all inflationary because it's pushing more currency in, and has in the past pushed more currency into the marketplace. But the good news is if you have some mixed control, hopefully that should slow down. And the other piece of good news is we follow M2 money supply. So M2 money supply is a measure of from the Federal Reserve out into the economy uh, or from banks out into the economy. And year over year during the government shutdown, the M2 money supply went up 40, 40, 40%, which means for every $10 of currency there was before the pandemic, after the pandemic, there was $14 of currency. That's like a, a snake eating a rat. So there's this huge influx of cash in the currency in the marketplace. But the good news is the M2 money supply now has really slowed down. So in other words, it's not adding more fuel to the fire, but it's still going to take time to work through that 40% increase, that bubble that we saw uh, earlier, like a couple of years ago. Awesome. That's great, David. Thank you. It's always such a great visual. You know, it really captures what's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, last quick note to Mark's question. So I think it's very easy to focus on the nominal returns. You know, I hear, as long as I get 6 to 8% in the market, let's be great. That's all I want. Well, really, one of the main purposes, and David spoke to this earlier, is we want to make sure we're protecting our purchasing power. That's one of the main names for investing. And if we get a real return that's positive, then that's what we're after. So that's really what we're centered and grounded and organized around. So I think that's one thing to focus rather than high nominal returns. I want to move on to the last section of our webinar before we open up to Q&A. So David, when we work with our clients, we commonly use dimensional fund advisors for components within their portfolio because we just find that our experience with them and then the research just proves that they're a superb um, premium as an offer. Yeah. So what should our clients know about Dimensional? What makes them different and why are they so compelling? Yeah, great question. And so um, I think Miss Cleveland might even be listening in. Um, for those that know our team, yeah, um, she uh, is on maternity leave, but she said she wanted to participate or watch in on the webinar. And uh, the reason I'm bringing her name up, obviously, because she's got a baby, but um, 
also she kind of helps us with the compliance. So let me start with the compliance first. So the vast majority of our clients listening today have some form of dimensional fund advisors, DFA positions that we use in the portfolio. Uh, there's no revenue sharing, there's no commissions, but they do offer a really good solution for implementing slices of the pie in the allocations that we're trying to get for our clients. So just wanted to cover that in terms of disclosure. All right. So what is the dimensional difference? <laughs> when I started thinking about this, where I got kind of landed was, I think there's three main reasons why, like David and Katie, first and foremost, right? That this is where we have our, our, our retirement capital. And then why do we... Uh, why do we utilize it in portfolios for our clients? So first thing is history and research. So I love this story going back in history. Like where, where did Dimensional come from? In David Booth and Rick Singfeld, uh, they founded Dimensional in, DF, in, uh, in 1981. And they studied at the University of Chicago in the early 70s under Eugene Fama and Kenneth French. And then around 72, 73, Booth and Singfeld helped Fama and French develop the first ever index fund. And believe it or not, it was Wells Fargo that came to the University of Chicago and they said, hey, we want a low cost, effective way to get stock market returns without having to use a broker to buy an individual stock. And out of that came the first ever index fund. In fact, in 1976, John Bogle bought the technology from Wells Fargo to be able to start doing indexing within Vanguard. And so I love this story because like it goes back in history. It's like, here are these young students, right? Working under protégés and they, they see all this research and they're like, this makes so much sense. How can we make it like a lower cost for investors to get access to the capital markets? And thus the first ever index fund, but more importantly, DFA was founded in 1981. So one of the key differences though, between these two, let's see, let's draw one. There we go. Index fund and DFA is an index fund is 40, 45 year old technology. Because remember, it was invented, they're actually pushing 50 years now. It was invented in the early 70s. But Dimensional has the largest, I'm going to write research here, and then data. I'm going to write that in all caps. Dimensional has the largest database of security pricing, meaning the price of stocks day by day, the largest database of security pricing in the world. They have hundreds, over 100 years of data in the U.S. markets. They have them in all developed emerging or in the developed international markets. They have them in the emerging economies. So they have this database because if we're going to build an investment strategy, the more data we have, the better assessments we can make on how we want to build that. So that's the first component is just know that your investment strategy is really built upon a strong, long history, history of, uh, of research and data. Now, what does that history and data enable? Uh, I'm an engineer, so I use this word design. So by having the data and 100 years of it plus in the US, one of the things that Dimensional does is they say, well, is there types of stocks that we can own and get a premium? And the answer from the data is yes. First one is, if you're a client of ours, you know this, small tends to outperform large, not every year, but 
you know, six out of 10 years. Relative price, that would be the value versus growth. Value stocks, six out of 10 years tend to outperform growth. And the last one is what we call high profitability versus low profitability. And what I want to point out is it's true in the U.S., it's true in the developed markets, international, and it's true in emerging markets. So when you start to see these premiums, right, it's not every year, but the longer you hold your portfolio, the more you put the odds in your favor of capturing these premiums. And it just so happens that right now, this value growth premium is showing up because of this higher inflation. So that's another dimensional difference is they give us the tools to be able to tilt or bias a little bit towards small companies. Don't get me wrong, you definitely own large companies in your portfolio. You own growth companies in your portfolio. You own maybe some companies that aren't as profitable right now, but we're tilting towards those more profitable companies, those more value companies and those smaller companies. And last but not least is implementation. So if you accept, you're like, okay, I like this. This sounds, this sounds good. I like design. I want to kind of tilt towards some value and small and high profits. How, how do I do that? That comes to DFA's implementation. This blew my mind. In fact, Kellen, Kellen was one of the founders. It's called By the Numbers. So this is at the end of 2020. They have 220 investment vehicles. They're invested in 47 countries. By the way, that means if you're a client of ours, you are too. And they trade somewhere around 6,000 times per day. And they have over 500 million data points that are processed each day to drive those decisions. Now, if you've been with us for some time, you know that we don't churn the account. Neither does DFA. They're not buying and selling, buying and selling, like swapping positions. But a great example might be, okay, well, if a stock meets a criteria for small value, they'll slowly methodically buy it. If it no longer meets that criteria, it will exit that position. So those are the three kind of things I wanted to highlight today. History and research, the design of the portfolio, and last but not least is implementation. And you're probably wondering, well, great, David, this all sounds good, but like, you know, come on. How does this really help me? Like, how does this really help me with my investments and give me a better, maybe a better return? So I, we picked one example. This is GameStop. I don't know if you all remember back in early 2021, this was a meme stock, which means some day traders, some options traders, they drove the price just bananas. And so here you can see the price of GameStop started around 20 bucks, went all the way up to $350, and then came crashing back down to like 30 bucks. Now, here's where implementation matters. So let me start, I'm gonna use different colors. So we'll use blue for dimensional. So the dimensional small cap portfolio started the year, which is right here, with a position in GameStop because it met the criteria for a small cap value position. Look at these indexes though, I'm gonna circle that in red. The Russell 2000 index also had a position in GameStop. But notice what happened. So let me circle this date, let's go in green. January 31st is right here. 
I should have driven it and uh, drawn it in red. There's the 131. This is when the stock price just plummeted. So Dimensional started with a position in the uh, GameStop, but as the price went up, it no longer met the criteria and it sold out of the stock. Meanwhile, the indexes are held to a basket of stocks they have to hold and it has to be market weighted. There's no rhyme or reason to this. It's just how their rules work. Meanwhile, what did they do? They bought more GameStop at its high. So what did Dimensional do? Dimensional ended up selling high, but unfortunately the indexes were buying <laughs> high. Fundamental rule of investing, you buy low and sell high. So this is just one quick example of how the implementation on a day-to-day -day basis with an individual stock in your holdings is being implemented in a very strategic fashion at Dimensional. So sometimes clients say, hey, in my portfolio, are there things going on behind the scenes that I may not be aware of? Absolutely. And this is a great example. Now, you might say, well, what did this lead to? And don't quote me on this. We can look it up if it's really relevant to you. But at the end of 2021, take, for example, the small cap value portfolio versus the Russell 2000 value index. The outperformance for dimensional was very pronounced, like five, six, seven percent. So that's where the implementation really matters when it comes to your portfolios. Wow, it's pretty compelling, but also very reassuring, right? Yeah. That even right now, Dimensional is working to capture premiums and seeing what makes the right fit, what doesn't, and they're being intentional about it. So you know they're not just shooting their shot, I'd like to say. Now it's time for Q&A, so please, everyone feel yeah. free to open up. You have always spoken to me about historical trends to give me confidence in future market expectations. Do you think our government's massive spending and increased national debt in the last few years might adversely affect this expectation looking forward? Oh, great question, Bob. So the place I always start is the government's going to do what the government's going to do. But when we invest in stocks, we're investing in human beings like all of us on the call today. And those of us that are still in our working careers, we go to work, we come up with new ideas, new products, new services, new ways to cope with ever-changing situations. And as the world's population continues to grow, the demand for those products and services is just going to continue to ratchet up. So that's the fundamental underpinning of owning stocks, regardless of what governments are going to do, is that you're investing in innovation. I read a stat, and we can uh, send this to you if you'd like, Bob, but the estimate is that between now and 2030, that another 1.4 billion people in the emerging economies will move from poverty level to middle class. That's 1.4 billion. And just imagine as they're moving in the middle class, they have purchasing power. They want, they want iPhones. They want food. 
They want internet. They want vehicles, on and on and on. So I think that the, the innovative capabilities of the companies that we own when we invest in stocks far outweighs where the government will do. And the second thing I say, if you're going to kind of like get laser focused in on the, on the national debt and so on, when we look at the uh, increase in government debt and we can overlay it with stock market performance, it's really hard to see any kind of correlation. And uh, so that's, you know, when you crunch the data there, it doesn't say that if the government spends more or does deficit spending, the market goes down. There, there's just no correlation there. The last thing I'd say is, I, look, I don't think the Fed is super smart or the politicians are super smart to know this. But the one benefit of inflation is it inflates away the debt. It makes it easier to pay the debt in the future with inflated away dollars than to try to pay, pay the debt today with, uh, with those more expensive dollars. So um, that's one, if you want to call it a positive, is that if you have this higher inflation that stays persistent, uh, maybe elevated in that 3 to 4% range, it's not necessarily fun for us on a day-to-day, -day, but it does, in, in, with governments with debt, it helps them inflate away that debt. Last point I'll make on that, and many of you are clients, if you're in a situation, 10 months ago, if you're going to purchase, let's say, a vehicle, and you could get an interest rate for a vehicle loan for, I don't know, 3%, but your yield in your savings account is a half a percent, and inflation is 2%, it really doesn't make sense to take out the debt if you've got the money. Well, today, with inflation cooking at 8%, and there are still some you know, dealerships or banks that'll lend on a on a auto loan at like four percent. That to me actually makes sense. Why wouldn't I want to pay the debt on the vehicle in, in future dollars that have been inflated away? Right. I know I could pay it off at any time, so my strategy might change. If inflation comes back down and my savings account yield comes down, absolutely I could pay the vehicle off. But when inflation is cooking at eight percent. I don't know, like, like that's the dominant strategy is extend the terms of your financing if you have existing financing and take them on debt with those longer term trends uh, or terms to say. The, the problem with that is it's self-fulfilling inflation. That's, that's what causes the inflation is smart people are like, hey, I'll extend out my term. I'll borrow more money because I want to pay with future dollars instead of today's dollars. So we'll see how that all plays out. But good question, Bob. Hopefully that helps. <laughs> that's great. And uh, yeah, it's it's so important to highlight the disconnect that you were talking about, David. We were joking around in a client meeting this morning about how we noticed some headlines in the news and, oh, inflation hit, you know, this new high. And then that day ended up being positive. Yes. <laughs> so, it really does have to make sense. Uh, so it's just important to realize the disconnect and the fundamental grounding that you spoke to. As always, thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your day to be intentional by joining us and being a great steward. On our website, you can access the webinar that we listened to today directly to see the full recording with the entire video by going to our website's news and then wise money decisions blog. You can find the post there. And in addition on our website, if you're not already a client of ours, you can click on get a second opinion on the top right of our main page and to see if there are any gaps in your current planning by meeting with us. And then finally, listeners, please submit any question you may have. It's top of mind. I know everyone has a lot of questions nowadays, usually always, 
but especially now, to my email directly at kellen at financialharvest.com or info at financialharvest.com, and we can pick one hot topic to address at one of our future episodes. So as always, let's keep planting, keep harvesting, and let's prosper together. Thank you, everyone.